0: How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies science? Sometimes it feels or like the church is trying to fool. The church seems to be stuck that in their ways exists. when the rest of the culture. is Why are they so obsessed with? Games? They keep trying to give answers but they don't even be a know part the church questions question. That that a church a is the most vocal, political voice curious, against. So Some churches still the one they claim I worship I with the actual. Do you understand straight kicks that is the 230 of plenty? The church seems to be stuck in their ways with the rest of the culture. How is that It seems like so much of the church's or being a good American, anti-critical thinking, thinking or being a good homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. I'll have to double check on this. I'm pulling up my phone right now, but I think this is episode 30. I didn't even realize that actually. This is episode 30 of The Church Needs Therapy. I'm pretty sure I started this podcast back in July or August. The first guest that I had on was Jonathan Merritt, writer, editor, uh, great author, written multiple books, and he was just an amazing first guest, which really interesting. I actually had coffee with him this morning because he's visiting Hawaii. But, man, I just looked back to the first episode, and we've had so many amazing guests since then. You know, some people I remember reading 15 years ago, some people who I've always been able to follow from a distance, friends of mine coming on, practitioners, philosophers, different races, different sexual orientations, all people who fit within this broad tent of Christianity, who care enough to dream about, to talk about, to fight for, to sacrifice for, and to give their energy to the future of the church. And I just wanted to take a moment just to think about that and say how grateful I am for that. You know, oftentimes I would tell people, You know, the things you dreamt of two years ago are the things that are easy to take for granted today, which is why one of the many benefits, one of the many great byproducts of contemplation and silence and solitude, where imagine your life is lived on a road going forward and think about silence and solitude and contemplation as a time to stop and get off of the road and you sort of climb up a mountain. And you can look off on the vast horizon, which, by the way, I always feel like a broad horizon helps open up a broad horizon within your own being. And then on top of that, when you get off the road and you go up into the mountain, you can look down at your path. You can see where you are. You can see where you think you're going, at least. Obviously, plans change. But you also can look back. Right, that time of silence gives you a moment, to, a moment to look back and think, man, a year and a half ago, I was worried about or concerned about or just excited for and anticipating or wondering if it was going to happen. And I was there. And now all of a sudden you're like, I'm doing that. I'm in that thing I was hoping for, dreaming for, praying for, working hard for. And now I'm in it. But without that time to go up to the mountain to have that sort of past, present, future view of things, that gratefulness, that centered space, that groundedness in God to receive it all as a gift, it's so easy to just keep grinding and keep going. Instead of recognizing, man, like, yes, of course, there's so much more to do, but now like... I'm I'm genuinely grateful for where I am. Sometimes I feel like people talk about gratitude as if it's something. If I just say hard enough to myself, I'll con- like I'm grateful. I got to practice being grateful. I'm like, it almost feels like another attempt of the ego to convince the ego we're grateful, as opposed to actually disconnecting ourselves from our daily grind spending time in silence taking that deep breath in breathing in the awe breathing in the wonder breathing in the gift of life where you're not you're no longer trying to be grateful because gratefulness in those moments just emanates naturally from that wide space within from those deep breaths drinking in, breathing in the spirit and being there so this is just sort of a moment as I look back excuse me i want to take a drink of water I can look back the past six, seven, eight months be like, man, I've had some amazing guests. And I'm so grateful for the people following along. And for those of you who listen in and follow along, I'm grateful for you and to have people who pay attention, to have people who, you know, engage with it, to have people who are excited about episodes dropping. And that's an amazing thing. You know, this connection we have wherever you, wherever you are right now. By the way, if here's what I'm going to ask you to do, right? So we can all have this mutual gratefulness connected moment. I'm really going to ask this of you. Wherever you are right now, will you please take a picture, whether it's a selfie, a picture of where you're at, a picture of you in the environment, wherever you're listening in from, would you take a picture and if you're on Instagram, post it. Put it on your stories. Let me know so I can restore all those. Because it's just so cool for people to see other, for me to see where people are listening in from. Because that's just something that it's just a, it's just such a gift for me to see that. So if you're doing it, take a picture saying this is where I'm listening to. The church needs therapy. That would be a huge gift to me and for other people to see. So grateful news. Gr- grateful news. That's scary. Um, gratefulness. I didn't plan on beginning with that, but sometimes you have to just step back and do that. So people listening in, I love you. I'm excited about you know the possibilities right now for the book and moving forward and keep everybody updated on that. So many good things to have with the podcast. So for the episode today, what I wanted to do after some great interviews is do a little more Q&A. I had so much fun doing the Q&A before with Livvy. He's not here with me. But there's some questions in front of me that I want to respond to for today because I think that gives me a chance to breathe a little bit and just allow myself to respond without the restriction of a teaching and a creative thing. It's kind of more of an open space, and I just enjoy doing that. I like responding to questions. So I'm just going to do a few questions today. Let me see. Here's here's the first one. All right. This, This is a good one. Now that weed is being legalized, or it has been legalized—that's my correction. It it has been legalized in many places, but they're right. Now that weed is being legalized in different places, what do you think about it personally? And what what should I think they forgot? Should, or uh, it doesn't say should. And what should the church's response be? Well, now that weed is legalized, what do I think about it personally? And what do I think the church's response should be? Hmm. That's an interesting question. And that's a timely question. And I'll tell you the truth. Since 2008-ish, I have been saying, and I've been thinking to myself, the church is not ready, excuse me, the church is not ready for... The conversation about weed and, of course, further about psychedelics, that's a, that's a different conversation. The church isn't ready to have a more complex conversation about weed, marijuana, people getting high, smoking recreationally, and their faith, and specifically their faith in, the way of, in their path, their, their experience on the path of Jesus, because for so long, the church has had this phrase where they say, well, it's the law of the land. Have any of you listening ever heard that phrase? What's the law of the land, which oftentimes comes from Romans 13, which says, obey your governing authorities. I'm like, you know, Martin Luther, the guy who sort of created this idea or discovered it of justification by faith in the 16th century. He said if he could get rid of any book in the Bible it would be the book of James because he thinks James promotes, uh, you know, fate you faith and works, like you you earn the love of God by working. It's not what the book means. But he said, if I could get rid of one book, it would be that. If I could get rid of one part of the Bible, to be honest, and I say this half jokingly, it's Romans 13, 1 through 7. Because of the whole governing authorities thing is so many people in privilege, so many people in power, so many people who benefit from unjust systems have specifically, namely, you know, sort of this white nationalist Christianity here in the U.S., have used that verse to keep people in their place, like to go against work for liberation, to work against, you know, work for justice. Because why would you challenge injustice when the governing authorities have been put there by God? And just what a surprise that people saying that happened to benefit from the system of injustice. Can you believe it? So... That verse is used as a weapon to maintain the stat, or that's, that passage is used as a weapon to maintain the status quo. Anyways, I, I digress a little bit. So I've always thought, one day when weed is legalized, which I always assume it would be, the church and leaders can't just say, "Well it's the law of the land. No, it's not anymore. Go to California. Weed's legal. You can't just say it's illegal. It requires a much more complex conversation. It requires a much deeper level of engagement that I don't think a lot of spiritual leaders and specifically pastors and clergy people in the church are prepared for. So my response to that is, for me, when it comes to smoking weed or other substances, I always begin with why. The deeper and more interesting question is why. Why are you smoking weed? Why is weed a normal part of your life? What does it do for you? Why does it help you? What is? What are the benefits it brings to you? Because when people have space to answer those questions, now we're moving past this surface-level engagement to, like, what is really happening here, right? We had this, like, I was getting high virtually nonstop. You know, I started getting high when I was like, started drinking when I was 12, started getting high when I was like 13, right? So from 13 to 18, I was high every day. Eventually, you know, when you're an everyday smoker, it's like you can't sleep if you're not smoking weed. I couldn't eat in many times of my life without smoking weed. So weed was a normal part of my life for a long time. And we had this saying growing up, you know, we don't smoke weed to get high, we smoke weed to get by. <laughs> Like it was a survival thing. It was a way to help us get through. So that's my question for people is why, you know? Oh, it helps me with my anxiety. Oh, so you're anxious. Okay, well, let's talk a little more about that because if we explore your anxiety, we start exploring the deeper parts of your life where the real healing and transformation needs to happen. Well, someone says, oh, I smoke weed because I can't sleep. Oh, so you can't sleep. Why can't you sleep? Because at nighttime, my mind is just haunted by shame and thoughts of my past and unprocessed conversations. Oh, so there's a lot of unfinished work within you that we need to that that is the real work. Okay, so for me it's like I always with substances, even with weed, I'm like, the question is, I always begin with this why? Because that takes us into the... Because if people really answer that, we're into some deeper waters, right? We're going from... We're not in the kiddie pool anymore, right? We're we're going a little deeper in the middle, middle of the pool into the deep end. We're exploring some deeper stuff. So in a non-antagonistic way, that's where I usually begin with why because that opens us up to a better conversation. And I would say one thing about that as what the church's response should be or me as a pastor is I don't primarily frame the conversation about weed and spirituality or weed in the way of Jesus or whatever in a moral framework for me it's not primarily a moral issue it's primarily in the conversation about what it means to be free that's a whole different conversation you have with somebody of telling them why they shouldn't do it because it's bad or immoral? Which you can't just say the law of the land now, right? Like I just said, it's for me. It's not primarily oh, let's talk about the morality of this. It's what does it mean to be a, a free human being? What does it mean to move towards peace? And that and that was always a part of my own journey of you know smoking weed and doing other drugs growing up was. I always dreamt of a life where I could be free beyond that. And my inner logic as a teenager for like 17 or 18 was if my peace, if my joy, if my contentment is contingent upon any substance outside of myself, then I am in essence enslaved to just like in a spiritual, emotional, psychological sense or I or I am codependent upon if enslaved is too strong of a term, I'm codependent upon that thing. And so it's like if my peace or joy or freedom is contingent upon me ingesting that, I'm not actually free. that thing holds the keys to my freedom and that was unacceptable to me not because I felt guilty or immoral for doing it as a teenager I didn't it was because. I wanted a freedom that wasn't contingent upon anything outside of myself. I wanted to be me wherever I went. I wanted to go to a party. I wanted to be by myself. I wanted to be seen by people. I wanted to be invisible and say, I can be me, feel the same, take a deep breath, be in silence, and be okay and being grounded wherever I am regardless. Like that was what freedom was for me. So I don't have answers on all of that, but I do think beginning with why allows us to go into people's lives if they really want to talk about it. And, you know, not primarily framing it in a moral sense, but framing it within the human longing for freedom. You know, this helps sometimes the things that help us feel free in the moment actually can get in the way of our freedom. Long-term, we can totally become that for people, you know, and I'm not talking about the medicinal, you know, when, when doctors prescribe it, that's a different conversation. But to me, there's, there's just a deeper level of engagement that's required in a real listening to people and a real being open to that. And also broadening it out from just morality and law to what, what is this? Is this, what is, how is this a part of our journey as a whole? So that's like my 10 minute answer to that first question, which means I'll probably answer three questions today. Um, Okay, here's a here's second one. What has been your reaction to all of the AAPI, so Asian American Pacific Islander hate, right? These, the last year we've seen hate crimes towards Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders just exponentially increasing. I think it's been over 2,000 in the past year. So what has your reaction been and what should people of faith do with the fact that so much of what is fueling the racism and violence is Christian nationalism, Okay. Well this per uh okay when it says people of faith, what should people of faith do? well people of faith first of all that's everyone in a sense first of all, we all have faith in something even if an atheist has faith that there's nothing so we're all people of faith you know and people of faith specifically extends to Hindus, extends to Muslims, extends to Jews, extends to whoever because people have faith in different traditions so at, for me, I can only speak primarily about people of faith in the Christian tradition in Jesus. Um, so I'll talk about the church. You know, this question, this all of this Asian American Pacific Islander hate. I don't know if everybody knows this who who listens in, but my wife, Asian American, family's from Vietnam. My kids, half Asian, <laughs> they're my wife's daughters and my 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 son, my daughter. Where I grew up in Los Angeles is, I want to say predominantly Asian American. If not, it feels like that. It's a very Asian American part of Los Angeles, San Gabriel Valley, Monterey Park, Alhambra, San Gabriel, Temple City, Rosemead, right? That San Marino, that whole area. And like I joke around, like I've been knowing about boba for a long time, right? I remember the first time trying it. When I was, you know, in high school, I remember being in fourth and fifth grade and trading whatever my white people food was like a turkey and maybe sandwich or with, you know whatever sandwich my mom made me with this kid, Stephen Morey squid balls in class. Or maybe he was just giving them to me. Maybe we weren't trading. I don't know. My mom says that. Um, so I've always grown up around, you know. a a large Asian American community. I moved to Hawaii, Asian American, Pacific Islander. It's like, it's, this is, you know, the normal community I'm in when I'm here. So it's just always strange if people have issues with Asian people, you know, and they have some strong hatred towards the Asian American community of Pacific Islanders. I will say that the Christian nationalism and even more specifically the white Christian nationalism that has been more and more public the past year that people are seeing is one of the greatest threats to the public witness of the church and also it seems like one of the greatest threats to the democracy in the United States of America right now and you know, like older generations not realizing how they're being radicalized, right? We think, oh, like Muslims, can you believe those young kids get radicalized and they get turned into these radical Islams and there's radical Imams and Fox News. I'm like, we have a generation that has been and is being radicalized by white Christian nationals. It's always been here. It's, It's more public now and people are aware of it. But, you know, these... Like, especially older, like, boomers, you know, who are somehow pulled into QAnon stuff, have churches that are highly nationalistic, you know, that dangerous cocktail of nationalism and patriotism and the gospel. Like, it's affecting families. You know, I have friends who have a hard time with their parents because their parents are getting caught up in it and it's spilling over into communities. And now you see it on national levels, ultimately in the insurrection. Like, it's this big thing that's super dangerous and we have to remember the church is a place of resistance the church is a subvert it was from the very beginning a minority subversive status quo disrupting community that was proclaiming an alternative king that was challenging the caesar who was in the roman empire the church in the beginning was not woven into the political powers. It was a challenge to the system. It was a challenge to authority. It was a critique of the political powers that be. It was a critique of violence. It was a critique of that which was on the Hierarchy that was at the top of the hierarchy, stepping on those on the bottom. The church was on the bottom in solidarity with those on the bottom, challenging those who were at the top. We always have to remember that. So what should the church's response be? The church should remember its prophetic calling to be a place of resistance, to call out white Christian nationalism for what it is, to call out institutional racism for what it is, to call out all of the ways the church... Has been lured into, seduced by, and is, you know, caught up in that same system that is a threat to our country and the church. And what, when I think about that, I'm like, the very, this older generation right this sort of white nationalist christians you know obviously they were massive trump supporters before you still see god and guns rhetoric and don't tread on my freedom all this stuff the crazy thing is the very you think about the parents the very people the very parents who were obsessed with making sure their kids stayed in church are now the very reason why this next generation of kids are running from it Right, they were so their kids go to youth group. the kids go. I don't want them to be on a slippery slope towards relativism. I don't want them to be caught up in New Age stuff. I don't want them to be corrupted by universities. And the very parents that were obsessed with their kids staying in the church, now are the very reason so many of their kids in this next generation want nothing to do with it, because kids are seeing their parents get swept up into this white nationalist weird, you know, alt right, far right version of the faith that is destroying the public witness of the resisting church so the church is always supposed to be a place of resistance a place of critique a place of challenge right there's so many stories there's so many rich stories in our tradition of people challenging and resisting the powers that be I'll, i'll give you one example John Deere, you look him up. He I think he won a Nobel Peace Prize before. Friar or Father John Deere, can look him up, which is one of the greatest peace activists the past, let's just say fifty years. And I think it was in one in the Gulf Wars. I know it was in the nineties. You know, America was going to war again, like we do. And him and another group of priests, right, all these nonviolent, you know, anti war peace activists, Got together and said, How do we bear witness to the peaceable kingdom of God? How do we put on display that the king that, that Christ's kingdom is one of peace and not war when we live in a country that is completely caught up in a culture of war? And so it was it was him, a few I don't know how many other priests and some nuns and some nuns were there too. How sick, like in their habits, like all in their outfits, all going in together. And they snuck onto, I think, a naval base. You can look this up. They snuck onto a naval base like when the war was really like popping off. And they went, th- when they got on there, John Deere or one of the priests took out a small hammer and he hit one of the fighter jets. Can you believe that? Can you imagine an American citizen sneaking onto a military base and hitting one of the fighter jets with a small hammer? Well, you can imagine, right, when this happened, it was like pandemonium. It was crazy. It was insanity, you know, thrown on the ground, guns drawn. They get arrested. These priests and nuns are getting arrested, right? Long story, they finally end up going to court. And when they go to court, the judge is kind of like, what are you guys doing? Like, what is what is the deal? What is happening here? And John, think about the public witness of the church, bearing witness to a kingdom that has an alternative social order than the one we're currently in. And he's in court in front of all these people. And he says, well, in Isaiah 2, you can look the passage up. In Isaiah 2, the prophet said, there will come a day when we will beat our swords into plowshares, meaning our weapons of violence will be turned into weapons of cultivating creation and caring for each other. He said, the prophet Isaiah said, there will come a day when we'll turn our swords into plowshares and we will practice war no more. So, you know, you're going to dismantle weapons of violence and turn them into weapons of peace and love and cultivation. And then he said, so we just figured we would start right here. So it was this massive sort of performance art prophetic act of our hammer is going to hit this fighter jet, this weapon, this this. Tool of violence and destruction, and we're going to pr- symbolically start to turn it into a weapon of of uh, of peace and cultivate. We're going to destroy these weapons of violence. That is an example of resistance, and they do it with joy, and they do it with laughter, and they're getting arrested. And there's another story where him and some people circle this nuclear, like where it, it was a it was like a, this this government site where they hired kids who were like really into gaming and in that culture to pilot and to fly and to control drones so these kids are hired because of their gaming and their technology skills to work in this government zone to control drones that are killing people you know halfway across the world in different parts of the Middle East like that's crazy how that works. So another time, John Deere and all these activists circled the place like holding flowers. They got down on their knees and they were just like, you know, if they're praying or they're chanting and doing what they do, just saying, can we stop this culture of war? Our our tradition is filled with people who resist violence, systemic racism, cultures of war, oppression, right? We have to be tuned in and be aware of this great rich tradition we have of activists and resistors and and freedom fighters. So, you know, what does the church do? The church continues to bear witness to an alternative kingdom that has already been started but is not here in its fullness yet. So, let me see. Two questions, almost 20 minutes. I love it. I'm going to do one more question. Let's see. This person... All right, here's the question. What frustrates you about the church right now, and how do you stay hopeful and committed to Jesus and to the church? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump to the hopeful part here. You know, a friend of mine who was a pastor told me this years ago. He said that he was thinking about preaching, you know, this series called, I think it was The Other 20%. And it was this brilliant idea of, what if after all these years pastoring, I talked about the other 20% that as pastors we don't talk about, right? Like, what I really think about, you know, white nationalism and Trump or how my views have evolved and how I really think about the LGBTQ community in the church in the future right now. Oh, you can't say that. Or what if I really said what I thought about money or what I thought about celebrityism or what I thought about, what are, what are our most precious idols right now or whatever it is. And he was saying, you know, I thought about a, hey, someone told him, you should, you should, you should do that. You should preach the other 20%. Right. And it's most pastors have that, That those things they don't say, those things they can't say because they might get fired and they're scared. Those things they refuse to say because those people might leave the church and that's hard. Those things they're unwilling to say because other people might leave, the finances might go and they don't know how they're going to make their life work. All legitimate concerns. But what makes me hopeful is I think there's more and more leaders who are just completely done with having the other 20%. You know, from the beginning of Imagine, our church, my wife and I started, you know, I still lead right now. I committed to never have another 20%. And I knew early on in order for me to be fully myself, to live with integrity and the spirit of God, I knew I'm not going to do the other 20%, which means I'll probably never have the kind of congregation or get the kind of money other people get in the church. And I'm okay with that. We made plans early on, my wife and I, to always raise or always bring in the majority of our income to be coming from outside the church, from inside, because that frees us up to not have another 20% because it allows us to have the freedom of, oh, if we say this, they might leave. That's okay. Jesus said things to people that made them leave. He didn't beg them to come back. He kept it so real When people left. He wasn't trying to win them over. He let that happen. And that's always been a model for me. And what one of the things that brings me hope is there's more and more leaders that are like, we're done with the other 20%. We're being us. We're saying the thing. We're speaking out. We're coming up with creative ways financially to make this work. We're no longer going to become the the like circus, what do they call like the, the ringleader of a circus who keeps putting on shows while a little part of them dies inside along the way because that's what happens. Right? This the courage and the ability to talk about what's real, what's important, what can be hard and scary and difficult and awkward, but is so necessary if we want a church that grows and is alive and has real places of healing and freedom for the future. You know, we need, that's what brings me hope is more and more leaders refuse to have the other 20%. We don't do that, I'd imagine. I'm not the only one. There's many leaders out there who just refuse to do that anymore. And, you know, what brings me hope, I, I and on a personal level, I still see people waking up. I still see people he, being healed. I still see people committing to justice. I still see people taking risks in community. I still see people letting themselves be seen. I still see people surrendering. I still see people forgiving. I still see people that I still see the fruit of the spirit of God for so many people on the way of Jesus. And I'm, I'm always hopeful for the church because no matter what parts of it are malformed, the spirit is still erupting and alive and, you know, happening all over the place. So our our freedom is beyond the other t- we're not other 20% people we are we're making our lives one thing and we're giving 100% to this and the people who are doing that i see all over the people i see on the, who i have on this podcast they inspire me they bring me hope i'm doing my best to live into that let's be people leaders in the church who don't have another 20% so couple questions You know, a little talk about weed, a little white nationalism, a little bit of hope. Come on. What more can we ask for in a podcast? So we're going to stop there, do some exciting interviews ahead, some more teachings, perhaps some more Q and A's. And I'm just so grateful. Don't forget those pictures. For those of you who listen, post those, I would love to see them. And until next time, I pray that, uh, That hope will be planted deep in your soul and that you live beyond the other 20%.